Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. I'm your host, Elaine miller Karras. Today's show is called Artificial Insemination, Unknown Origins and the Secret of History. And I'm so honored to have my guest today, Peter J. Bonney. His new book is Uprooted, Family Trauma, Unknown Origins, and the Secretive History of Artificial Insemination. Today, Peter will share with us what happened to him during his 49th year and also the journey that he's been on for two decades when he found out that his father was not his biological father. And let's learn a little bit more about him first. He credits his disruptive childhood, a state college education from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, decorated on-the-ground service as a U.S. Army Special Operations Team Leader in Vietnam, plus lock-of-the-draw DNA um, with making him the person he is today. He has had quite a career, including high-tech CEO, venture capitalist, board chairman, nonprofit leader, award-winning entrepreneur, a book author, and senior advisor. Peter, welcome. Thank so you. Good to, so good to have you. So as we get started today, what is on your mind um, as you've heard me introduce you and we also chatted a little bit before we started? What's, what's on your mind today? Well, today I really consider myself an author and an advocate for the rights of the donor conceived, uh, who in my view have been disregarded by the very industry that helped enable my conception to begin with. Uh, it's the assisted reproductive technology industry that operates very free from regulatory oversight. And it's, it enables a conception of dozens, uh, if not a hundred or more siblings from the same donor with nobody's knowledge. Well, uh, there's I'm no home. requirement for genetic testing. There's no registry to identify one uh, sibling to the other. Uh, and there's no laws on the books to combat fertility fraud. Well, so, I, when we were talking have, before we started, you told me a, a story that when you first found out that um, the person you thought was your biological father was not, that your friend of yours told you about Rottweilers. Can you share that story? Because that was uh, eye-opening for me. Sure. I was doing research uh, about the practices going on in the assisted reproductive technology field, and I shared some of what I learned to a friend who, as you mentioned, was uh, breeding Rottweilers at the time. And he said to me, my gosh, you realize, Peter, that there's more laws in the books, there's more regulatory oh oversight to the breeding of puppies than there is the conception of human beings. So my hope and dream is that this book will help shine a light on that and put a fix or some, get some regulatory oversight uh, via a donor-conceived bill of rights uh, to an industry that's out of control. Well, so why don't we get started and kind of talk about the beginning? So you were almost 50 when you found out you were donor-conceived. Can you tell us how that came to be? Um, sure. My uh, 75-year-old mother had open-heart surgery and then a post-operative stroke 
as a result of that. Now, she survived that, and she went into a rehabilitation. Her memory was a little fuzzy around that period of time as well. But all of the locks that guarded the gate of her secret just no longer worked. And friends were coming in to visit her at the rehab center, and she was recounting to them uh, that after five years of marriage and uh, no children, uh, she saw an ad in the paper, or maybe it was a newspaper article, she forgot which, and couldn't tell which paper, about a fertility clinic uh, run by a Harvard Medical School professor. And she and my father went to that uh, fertility specialist. They determined that uh, dad was sterile, and they had a few choices, remain childless, adopt a child, or do this newfangled thing uh, through an anonymous sperm donor. Uh, and at that time, it would have been new. New. It was. It was new. That would have been in the beginning of the industry. Is that true? It was. Uh, it was in the uh, second inning of the second the inning. Industry. Okay, so pretty pretty new, but not quite the beginning. Okay. Not quite new, but it had been around for a little bit and practiced in stealth uh, for a bit. And uh, the uh, according to my mom, the uh, doctor said, "Well, I have a." knowledge of who your husband is, and I just trust me that I'll find the proper donor, and he will likely be affiliated with Harvard Medical School in some way, shape, or form. So that gave, did that give your mother like, oh, well, this is going to be a good sperm donor for, for me to have a child? Yeah, sure. Hey, he's a doctor. <laughs> he's a doctor. Yes. Okay. I get that. And from Harvard. No, no. Such a prestigious school. So then what happened after that? Well, she... Uh, told my wife that as well. And uh, my wife told me because she wouldn't tell me directly. So your mom wouldn't tell you uh, directly. Your wife no. had to tell you. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and then we took, got my wife, uh, my wife and I took my mom home from rehab. And uh, we were making her a Sunday dinner. And I brought it out after small talk after dinner. I said, Mom, we have to talk. And brought out the story that she had been telling. And uh, she... Uh, disavowed that she told me anyone that story. She said she must have been delusional. Uh, but anyway, uh, I got it. I got her to uh, admit it. And it was very uh, uh, emotional for her yes, at that imagine. period of time. And then she started recounting all of the detail that she could remember about the name of the doctor and the address of the fertility clinic. Now, she got the name wrong and she got the address wrong. Uh, but I was bound and determined to find the source of my seed. And I took the clues that she had left me and found stone walls. I just couldn't find uh, anything from the clues that she had given me. So, so what was your initial reaction? I mean, were you angry at her? Were you sad? What were the curious, I mean, all of the above? Yeah, all of the above, Elena, uh, was confusing and conflicting emotions all at the same time. You see, my dad uh, took his own life when I was 16. Uh, he suffered from unipolar depression. He was hospitalized for uh, a number of years back and forth. Uh, and the old school Italian family uh, yeah. treated that as a flaw. Don't yes. tell anybody. Uh, let's find scapegoats uh, that are the reasons that he was uh, sick to begin with. Don't let mm. that uh, shine over on them. It might 
or wear off on, on them too. What a uh, large so burden for a, for a 60. Quiet. Keep yes. It quiet. So I grew up thinking, well, gosh, there's something wrong. I have to mm. keep this quiet. I can't tell anybody. It's a, everyone will be flawed and I'm flawed anyway. Well, so was there anyone to talk to about it or really you were more or less silenced? I kind of just kept it to myself, okay. really. Uh, I never really grieved properly as a result of that from my, from my dad and his death. And what a huge burden to put on a child. But, you know, I know that we didn't know as much as we know now. But even now, I know that sometimes there, that's also shrouded in silence. But so that you carried that. So when, you know, the question was um, that, you, that you posed was, why did you feel relief when you found out that the man who raised you wasn't your biological father? Well, nothing had changed, but really everything had changed. Uh, I always thought that that dysfunctional childhood and the state college education and the uh, military combat in, the, in Vietnam were the uh, things that helped shape who I was. And I took my DNA for granted. Uh, all of a sudden, my DNA is not my DNA after all. I, I was poking myself. I was the same person, but everything had changed for me. Yeah, but it's also clear that you very much loved your father. Oh, sure. You know, dad was, a, he was a great dad. He was a wonderful guy. He was a hero to his family. He was adventurous, uh, ambitious, generous. He was kind. Yeah, so all those he, things. He didn't intentionally get sick, you know. He, no. he suffered from bouts of depression. And as a younger man, he could shake that off. But when he got older, he just couldn't shake it anymore. Well, and I think, too, is that we know much more about depression now but so many of the treatments were just forming, and, and we know it is, it is a biological illness. It's not something that you wish to have. It's not something that you cause. Sometimes it runs threads in families. Um, so um, it is a very serious illness that does sometimes lead to people suiciding. And lithium was something that came to be in 1968. My dad took his own life in 1962. So, so it didn't After have... four years of hospitalization back... And I imagine great suffering, not only for him, but for, for the family and for your mom. Oh, sure. And so I, I can understand where there's a certain relief that, okay, that's not my DNA. But then you went on such a journey. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about, I mean, you said mentioned that that wasn't the correct doctor or the correct address. Do you want to mention a little bit about the journey, about how, how you got to really start learning more about the family history? Well, when I... Uh when I ran into the roadblocks because I didn't have uh, proper, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, clues. Uh, even if I had clues, there were no records anyway. Uh, the old days of that industry, they just didn't keep records. Uh, the only thing I could do, which was therapeutic, was research the living daylights out of the industry that was created uh, that enabled my conception to begin with. And I took a look at assisted reproductive technology from a uh, scientific, a sociological, and a legal standpoint, actually from biblical references right through to the present day. And I was so traumatized by the uh, discovery uh, that my wife suggested that I go see a therapist, and some of my friends did as well. And the old school... Uh, concept of uh, a therapist for me that I heard in both the war room as well as in the boardroom is if you are weak enough that you need a therapist, maybe you're not fit for command. 
Uh. So I kept that very quiet as I found a therapist that was good for me. And I cycled through a couple before I found one that specialized really in trauma. Yes, and that made a big difference uh, for you. You said something um, earlier to me before we started about the trifecta. You want to say, illuminate to what that meant when that therapist said that to you? Yeah, well, my first meeting with him, he said, congratulations, son, you hit a trifecta. And what he was really saying was that new trauma oftentimes rekindles old trauma that you thought had long passed. Uh, I was uh, still dealing with the trauma of my childhood and my dad's death, and I never properly grieved for him. Uh, And the whole PTSD from uh, service in Vietnam, uh, Vietnam veterans came home to a hostile uh, society. Uh, So we kept our experiences to ourselves. And then, and then the and suicide. Anger. Of your, I felt a lot of anger with that too. Yeah. So that's. Uh, I mean, so the suicide of your dad, the Vietnam experience, and then finding out about about the uh, the donor. All three things together. Right. And I just. And I, I think couldn't. I couldn't just deal with one. I had to deal with all three. Right. And I think that's important. I'm, just, I, I'm so um, humbled that you decided to share that um, with us, Peter, because there may be many listeners that may say, why am I not acting like myself? They may be experiencing trifectas in their own lived experience right now. And so I think what I really want to have our listeners really do a deep listen is that there's help available. So, Because I, I can see that you, you have been a pretty tough person in your life and, very, and you commanded men in battle and all sorts of things. And, and that because you had trauma didn't mean that you couldn't lead people. And so it's really important for people to know that there's help available. So thank you so much for sharing that. So the therapist helped you. And then you started to kind of learn more about... Um, people that were donor conceived. Would it be okay if we segued and talked a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So how many donor conceived people are out there in the world right now, like, and in the U.S.? Uh, more of a world number, there was a survey done in 2010 by essentially a trade association, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. It's American in name only because they have a membership uh, in over 100 countries. Uh, and they're a combination of a uh, uh, trade association that does networking, education, and they'll uh, work on uh, public policy, which is another way to say they're a lobbyist, all right? Uh, And their estimate was that there were about a million adults that were donor-conceived in 2010, and they estimated that 30 to 60,000 new donor-conceived individuals would be born every year. Uh, If I just took the midpoint of that, 45,000, and gave that a decade, 2010 to 2020, I've got a 50% increase in the population of the donor-conceived in a 10-year period of time. That's huge growth. That that is a lot of people, and not everyone – knows that they were donor conceived and like it was in your case and everybody shares that information. Well, um, certainly the older ones uh, was uh, hid from them. Uh, the, the donors were anonymous. The parents were told to keep it a secret uh, that the, the child would be uh, uh, poorly developed if it knew, if he or she knew uh, the uh, 
father would be embarrassed. Uh, the uh, society may consider the woman an adulteress. The uh, doctor may be someone who is uh, assisting adultery. Yeah. Uh, church and state all drove the practice of our assisted reproductive technology underground in a clandestine fashion. And so that actually probably that caused more trauma from what I'm understanding from you. Um, you also shared with me a term that I was not familiar with, and that's misattributed. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means and why it's important for us to understand? Sure. I never heard that word until I started researching this thing. If you're misattributed, uh, your birth certificate and your DNA just don't jive. Uh, something's askew with maybe one or, or both parents. Uh, and experts think that 2 to 4% of us are misattributed. Uh, some think it's a little less, some think it's a lot more, but they all agree that 2 to 4% is a, a, a number they can put their, put their hands on and, and their hat on. Uh, how can that be? How can you be misattributed? Well, the, the largest reason is the uh, late discovery closed adopted people. Uh, perhaps you could be the product of an extramarital affair or a one-night stand or an un, unreported sexual assault. Uh, perhaps you're switched at birth or uh, uh, Aunt Martha was uh, the one raising you. You thought she was your mom, but maybe Cousin Mary was really your mom, raised yes. by another family member. That still yeah. happens in families today. Yes, I think it happens or you can to be many like families. me in the old days. They called it semi-adopted. Semi-adopted. Uh, <laughs> conceived through an anonymous donor. For me, it was an anonymous sperm donor. Uh, today, the technology has uh, advanced. There's uh, egg donors, there's embryos, uh, and so forth. So how big, meaning how lucrative is this assisted reproductive technology industry? And when you're, I'm hearing you talk about how many people are involved with it, that they even have their own lobbyists. What is your estimation? Yeah, well, the, the industry is, is so large and it's growing so rapidly. I thought that it would attract the likes of J.P. Morgan or Goldman Sachs. Uh, And it has several product segments, if you will. Uh, Sperm banks, uh, that's a a $3.5 billion business expected to grow to $5 billion in 2025. That's not that far away. No, it's not that far away. Uh, There's egg banks today, uh, and that's a billion dollars. There's embryo bank, that's another billion dollars. So it just, and then the whole services uh, from the the clinics themselves uh, can add up to the trillions on a global basis. Well, and when you say that this is so lucrative and that there is, and when you, you called yourself, I'm now an author and an advocate. Now your advocacy comes from that. This is not a very well-regulated business. Is, is that, do I have that correct? That's exactly uh, the case. Uh, there are dedicated medical practitioners out there and uh, they do a great job, uh, but there's a small subsegment. I'll call them the rogues, and the rogues operate without laws. Uh, The science has expanded. It's not just fresh sperm anymore. It's frozen sperm. It's frozen egg. It's uh, embryo. It's surrogacy. It's uterine transplants, all with billion dollars of growth. Uh, The sociology and the legal acceptance has changed now that enabled that 50% growth in the last decade alone. Uh, so people can my, talk my about it openly. My issue isn't with the yeah. practice 
of the fertility specialist as much as is the distribution of the gametes, the uh, egg, the sperm, and the embryo, with little regulatory oversight. It's like the Wild West that enables the conception of many, many uh, uh, dozens, if not a hundred or more siblings. Well, and and Peter, you shared, you shared with me that the United States lags behind other developing developed countries. So why is this? And what, what is the danger if we continue to not have more regulations? Uh, well, how would you like to uh, date a sibling? No. <laughs> how would you like your children to date the children of your siblings? Uh, so has all, that actually uh, happened? All unknown to you with no registry. Uh, smart kids go to smart kids schools, uh, too, yes. by the way. Uh, how would you like to learn at age 50 that you're one of 100 siblings and feel like a, uh, a commodity uh, at that? Uh, how would you like to have a genetic disorder that could have been prevented if there were any kind of genetic screening uh, required uh, before the uh, donation took place to begin with? There's all uh, kinds of reasons uh, that uh, this is. Uh, now, has it happened just out of curiosity that someone has actually dated their sibling unknowingly? Uh, there have been uh, cases of that. Uh, I, I discovered a, uh, a sister a half-sibling, in February of last year. And uh, we, we crossed paths. Uh, we did not date. Uh, we did not know one another. But we crossed paths, and you can just stretch the imagination. Yes. Uh, is there anything behind the uh, genetic sexual attraction, or is that alchemy, where yeah, two adults meet, and they don't know why they're attracted to one another, but they are? Uh, well, yeah, and I've read about some situations where people were going to the same school and there was something about that person and then the discovery came out through, you know, serendipity almost. So I'm just wondering then, what do you think we need to do to fix um, the reproductive technology industry? Well, I would advocate for a bill of rights for the donor conceived, Elaine, and it would start with abolishing and uh, anonymity, donor anonymity, uh, and deal with known donors only. And because of 21st century DNA science, uh, that's been abolished de facto anyway, hasn't it? Right. Well, we have the Ancestry.com and um, the different kinds of things that we can do now that people can find that we're related. Now, was that something that you were able to discover by using those kinds of technologies now? Yeah, fortunately, uh, 21st century technology caught up with me. But remember, I discovered my uh, truth in 1995 that the Internet was in its infancy. Uh, Google was three years away from being founded as a startup company. So we couldn't Uh, just Google it to find someone, yes. 23andMe was 12 years away from introducing what ended up being the Time magazine uh, innovation of the year at the end of 2007. Uh, Ancestry.com didn't go into the field until 2012. So what did you do between 1995 and the, um, the development of this kind of technology? Well, I researched the daylights out of uh, the industry itself uh, from, like I stated, uh, from uh, biblical references through to the present day. Uh, I took my 23andMe test in uh, early 2008. I was one of the early startup uh, 
early customers uh, in technology. We call that the lunatic fringe. I was, <laughs> the lunatic fringe, because I understand from those yeah. those that those pockets too. The more people that take it, the more information you have. Sure. So in two thousand eight, yeah. their banks would have been much smaller than they are right now. It was a small database. I I, I learned what I didn't find who. I learned that I wasn't Northern Italian. I was English, French, and Scandinavian on my paternal side. Okay, I can live with that. Okay. And I thought if I just waited it out, uh, the database would increase and I'd, I'd find the source of my paternal seed. And nine years went by and I, I was just frustrated. I wasn't finding anything. I found a bunch of maternal relatives, but I wasn't motivated to find anything maternal. Well, when you say the source of your paternal seed, I imagine that you were saying it in that way for a particular reason. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, I just uh, have a problem uh, uh, thinking that I have a biological father that I can't call him my father. Uh, uh. Just because I uh, uh, I love my dad and uh, it's not mutually exclusive that I can love my dad and want to know my gene pool and my medical history at the same time and understand if I have any siblings. It's not mutually exclusive. No, I understand that. And I can see why there was that uh, um, discernment about calling it in that way. You know, Peter, we're going to take a small break in just a minute or so. um, And we're going to continue this discussion because I think it would be very helpful for us to understand more about your journey and what you discovered because you did find who was the, the seed. Is that correct? You did discover that eventually. I did. And you, you started on uh, the pathway of my donor-conceived Bill of Rights, and I want to get back to that too. Okay. We'll get back to the donor-conceived Bill of Rights and also talk about, about that. So we'll be back, listeners, with Peter, who will really do a deeper dive into the Bill of Rights and also tell us a little bit more about what he discovered in his journey. I know many of you will be interested in that. Thank you, Peter, for sharing this journey. It's so interesting. And I, I'm very... Um, I'm very grateful to you for oh, thank you. being on this journey to bring this information to all of us because I didn't realize how unregulated the business of this whole industry is. And I think it's something that we all need to pay more attention to for all the reasons that you um, are helping us understand. So we'll be back in just a couple minutes and we will continue our conversation with Peter. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma informed and resiliency focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine miller Karras book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at elaine at resiliencywithin.com. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Elaine Miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life. Your health. Your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine Miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm here with Peter J. Bonnie. We are talking about his book. And we're talking about the issue of artificial insemination and some of the, the pitfalls and the um, really the unethical practices and the advocacy that needs to happen. And Peter's going to continue and tell us a little bit more about the, the Bill of Rights that you think need to happen that are mentioned in your book. And Peter, I'd love for you to say the name of your book. Um, we want to say it a couple more times because I want people to read it. The name of the book is Uprooted, Family Trauma, Unknown Origins, and the Secretive History of Artificial Insemination. And so I think your Bill of Rights really go right to the core of what needs to happen. So if you can can tell us what those are. Well, I mentioned abolishing donor anonymity uh, and dealing with known donors only and recognizing we have 21st century DNA technology that's out there. It's abolished it de facto anyway. Uh, mandate donor genetic testing and the disclosure of donor health history, uh, limit the offspring per donor. Uh, today, there are guidelines, but there are no laws, and there are no good guidelines either. Uh, and and can there be hundreds, hundreds of people that can get the sperm of just one donor? I've certainly read stories about that. Well, uh, uh, I can take, take you on a longer journey if you'd like. On that, let me get through the... Okay, uh, go ahead, continue. Yeah. Establish a sibling registry so that uh, the uh, donor offspring know of one another. Uh, Require donor and recipient counseling regarding the needs of the donor-conceived child and then enable some legal recourse for blatant fertility fraud. Put some laws out there uh, that are, uh, I guess, some teeth in them as opposed to uh, shame, shame. That's very unethical, but it's not unlawful. Like the doctor who used his sperm for hundreds of donations. I mean, so that like, wasn't illegal, even yeah, though like the we doctor can both who say. used his own sperm, like the doctor that chose not to use the uh, sperm from the sperm bank selected by the uh, uh, 
recipients, but rather used his own anyway. Uh, like the uh, sperm bank or the egg bank that failed to genetically test the uh, donor beforehand, and they simply just took the word of the uh, donor regarding education and background and health. Uh, the, the case of somebody who claimed to be a PhD that spoke four languages was actually a convicted felon and a schizophrenic uh, who bred uh, several dozen children, uh, whose, whose sperm enabled the conception of several dozen children, uh, many of whom had problems along the way in their life. So the industry is really in need of a of an overhaul. Fix. Yes. Uh, so the short answer to get to your other question is fix the guidelines and convert them to federal law. Uh, and here's what I mean, and this is a more comprehensive answer. The uh, Association, American Association for Reproductive Medicine that I mentioned earlier, the ASRM, recommends a guideline of 25 per population of 800,000 uh, in terms of a, a gamut donor. Now, is that a limit? Uh, let's, let's talk about that. If I lived in Sacramento, I'd have two dozen siblings. Well, if, I lived, if I lived in metropolitan right. Boston, I'd have 125 siblings using that guideline. Now, if I were in a more populated area like you in Southern California, let's say LA or New York City, using that guideline, I'd have 250 siblings. Excuse me, I don't think that's a good guideline. It sounds wrong to me, Peter, because the, all the things that you mentioned earlier, you could start dating your sibling. There are all sorts of things that could happen as a result of that, of that number of siblings. Well, now you have the gamut of banks that... Uh, so a donor might go to a, a second bank, a third bank, and a fourth bank. So let's say a, a, a bank is using that guideline, uh, but the donor has done that times four. That's a, potentially a thousand. So there, so there is no, there's no, nothing that monitors the donor so that they can go to as many spam, sperm banks as there are. And I imagine there must be some lucrative payback to the donor. So how much does that donor get paid every time that he gives a donation? Well, you can uh, donate uh, a few times a week for uh, uh, a month at a whack and uh, do that over the course of a year and make about $15,000 under the table tax-free. Uh, if you are an egg donor, it's uh, far more invasive and uh, far more lucrative. An egg donor could uh, pay off a college loan, buy a car, put a down payment on a major house. Oh, my. So, so it, it so that it depends on whether it's a donor egg or whether it's sperm. And so, these gamut distributors, you know, the uh, the sperm and the egg and the embryo banks, uh, Elaine, they operate like Harrods or Nordstroms. Uh, they're not manned by medical professionals. They're really merchandising specialists from Procter and Gamble. Uh, there's return policies, there's warranties, there's credit card acceptances, there's FedEx shipments, there's cataloging uh, with models. Uh, uh, you can pick your uh, seed by, uh, by uh, color hair, color eyes, education, blood type, and race, uh, genetic background, and so forth. And then there's internet marketing of all of this as well. I had I had no idea. So I mean, I guess what you're saying is that it's rife for 
for this industry to have many problems and to have also, I guess, what the term that you use, they, they can go rogue and do pretty much anything they want. I mean, it doesn't sound like there's any holes barred for them to do anything that they want to do. Well, it's gone rogue in a, in a, a different way. Uh, it's actually off the rails now. Uh, it's been reported, uh, the, the emergence of an, I'll call it an internet underground uh, stay at home work now in the COVID, they have more time to raise a child and there's far fewer people taking the time to go to the bank to make a, a, a deposit. Uh, so demand for gametes is up 20%. By gamut, I mean uh, the seed, the egg, the sperm, or, or the, uh-huh. the embryo. So to meet the growing demand, you have private Facebook groups uh, cropping up, uh, sporting thousands of members. There's software applications and websites that work like Etsy or Match.com. Can you imagine getting a a sperm reg donor from Craigslist? Uh, No, (laughs) that seems a little, it seems a little difficult to me because I'm, you know, I can see that on one hand, we want people who are having fertility problems to be able to have the modern technology. That's one thing because I mean, many people, I mean, I imagine if your mom was right here with us, I mean, you've been a great joy to her. You were a joy to her in your life. And at the same time, we also need to have regulations so that there aren't these unethical practices, like you're saying, and also how it's rife with some of the problems that you've already, you've already mentioned. Now, I'm all for science enabling uh, people to have a family. Uh, And there's plenty of laws on the books uh, for the donor and for the recipient, and sure, they have rights. Uh, but can you point to me a, uh, a law about the right of the donor conceived? It's, it's absent. Yeah, and, and so th- th- I guess that's the next thing I want to ask you. I mentioned it um, before the show started, but I had read, I think I had read it on CNN about a family who the young man um, suicided, and that the, the, the mother had a sperm donor, and it turned out that the, the donor had quite a significant history and family history of schizophrenia that was never um, uh, shared with the sperm bank and they never asked. And that she now is a very strong advocate in trying to get laws changed. Can you talk a little bit about what is happening with legislation right now? Yeah, well, the, uh, the sperm bank did ask, actually. Oh, they did ask, okay. They, they asked the donor. They didn't check. They asked and it was a self, he, he filled out on himself. So he they lied. Check, they don't check these things. They don't. They don't check genetic history. They don't check uh, uh, background. They they just take your form. You fill it out, and that becomes the truth. But it's not. And so, is is there legislation right now on in state levels and federal uh, levels that are trying to 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 bring some of these regulations to to uh, fruition? Now, there's a patchwork quilt of activity going on on state by state by state basis and in a, in a couple of dozen states, actually, that take one aspect of that donor-conceived Bill of Rights or another aspect of that donor-conceived Bill of Rights. But there's no federal legislature, there's no federal initiative to make that thing a, 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 a federal law of donor-conceived rights. Uh, the, the case that you're specifically talking about was in New York State. And the parents have succeeded in getting a bill uh, just to be filed on the state legislature to deal with the uh, genetic testing. But that's just a piece of the equation. 
Yeah, and that's only one state. That's so only one state. It's only one state. So, so it sounds like there's a lot more to be done. And now, are there any advocacy groups that you are involved with? Or are there people coming together that are trying to not do the patchwork quilt, but to think more systemically on how to change some of this? Uh, there are some uh, advocacy groups that, uh, once again, operate on a state-by-state uh, basis. Our right to know is is one that is uh, dealing with the legality of this and trying to make some legislative impact. Uh, an, an organization that uh, helped me along the way was founded in 2016 and it's called We Are Donor Conceived. Uh, 100% people that were conceived by a, 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 a donor, egg, or embryo, or sperm. And it's a composite of people older like me and younger people that may have known that they were donor-conceived, but they didn't know who. I see. Well, I think that kind of brings me to my next question. So how did you discover the identity of your biological father? How long did it take and how did you get there? Sounds like it was a journey. Well, uh, fortunately, 21st century technology uh, caught up and uh, I became an early customer of uh, 23andMe that gave me uh, the what, but not the who. And I waited nine years as they built their database and I found plenty of maternal relatives, but I was not successful in finding my paternal uh, relative or any any one paternal relative. Uh, My son pointed out to me in 2016 that Ancestry.com had entered the uh, DNA field in 2012 to uh, enhance the the family tree tools and all of the records that they had. Uh, And they had advertised like crazy and uh, were building a very large database that was beginning to surpass the size of the database of 23andMe. So it was in 2017 that I spit into the uh, vial uh, for (laughs) Ancestry.com and sent my results in and had a paternal relative identified to me and uh, that relative uh, embraced uh, my outreach and uh, helped champion finding the source of my seed in, in, in that family tree. Oh, my goodness. So did you find the name and did you find all that kind of information? So- I have every piece of information I want now. Uh, there's only one thing that I'm missing. When I got into this to begin with, Elaine, I was asking myself, what's my genetic makeup? What's my genetic health history, and do I have any siblings? Now, my only question is, how many siblings do I have really? I don't know. So how many siblings have you found? Uh, There are six of us at last count. I've met two. And so what has that been like? Can you share with us the experiences? Well, you know, that's the the big bonus for me, uh, raised as an only child, uh, to have uh, two sisters, actually, uh, that share my DNA. They're nice people, and we have a lot in common, and we look alike. Really? That must be something really amazing to see siblings that look like you after all these years. Now, it's also uh, unusual in that I know people with siblings, and they don't get along with their siblings. Uh, we get along just fine, but we, we don't have that uh, uh, shared uh, experience. Uh, of childhood, of growing up. Yes. Yeah, right. Uh, we just have a very unique uh, DNA sharing. 
And do you think that you, did you embrace each other as like, oh, let's get to know one another? In in two of those cases, yes. Yes. And so the other four haven't had much interest. Uh, It doesn't seem to be the interest or maybe they just don't know just yet. Oh, because they haven't gone into the Ancestry.com and seen that, oh, you have a match. Or, well, maybe they've seen the match and they just don't understand it. It, it's, it was confusing for me. Yeah, no, I, I know. We had this happen in our family, too. So, um, oh, my goodness. I think it's my, my so, book so, goes over it in, in quite some detail regarding the, uh, the uh, centimorgan count uh, and the, the DNA segments in uh, the DNA uh, testing that needs to be deciphered. You know, I well, was so a psychology major with business training. Uh, I wasn't a biotechnologist yes. or a bioengineer. Well, and so I guess that's my other question. I'm such so curious. Is that now were they um, conceived from the donor or were they conceived from him directly? In one case, uh, it was the uh, offspring naturally of the uh, the donor. Uh, so uh, uh, she learned that her father was a uh, sperm donor, never knew. And uh, in the other case, she learned that she was donor conceived and never knew. And she learned that at age 75. Oh, my goodness. 25 years after you. (laughs) I learned it at age 49. And it took me until age 71 to answer all of my questions. 22 years. That's too long. And uh, she learned it and learned everything within 22 hours. That's pretty amazing with the technology. Now, let me, I have another question because you said at the beginning that the doctor told your mom, oh, well, you know, we, we have a lot of the Harvard people that are there. So did that bear out? Did, was there honesty in what that doctor said to your mom way back when or not? When I, get all, I get into that in the, my book in terms of the background of my donor. Uh, he was not a med student, but there was a Harvard connection and I get into that Harvard connection. Uh, many of the early donors were medical students. I see. So he was he was connected to Harvard, like the doctor told your mom, uh, in a loose fashion. Huh. And did you did you were you curious about wanting to know about his nature, whether any of the parts of his nature were similar to your nature or not? Well, I'll tell you when I when I get into this, I, I never said to myself, I want to meet my donor. I wanted to understand my genetic history. I wanted my genetic health background. And I wanted to know if I had any siblings. Uh, but my, uh, my sibling that was his natural child gave me everything, volunteered everything regarding the nature of the individual, and his background and his experience and his sense of humor and so forth. Now, you know, heritage is, a, is an unusual uh, complex formula. Nature and my, nurture. Yes. My son, my son looks like nobody in the family huh. until we saw his picture. Oh my! And then my daughter-in-law looked at that picture and looked at my son and said, "Meet your, meet your grandfather." Oh, that gives me a chill when you say that. Like, it's such an isn't isn't our DNA something so remarkable? So, what did, what was your son's experience with that? Did he share it with you? Uh, yeah, he had uh, mixed feelings. He was thrilled for me uh, that I had all of these answers to uh, my questions. He was thrilled for him that there was nothing uh, from a medical uh, history standpoint that was alarming in any way. It was quite uh, the opposite. Uh, but he was uh, a little concerned that he might have more family obligations than uh, he was ready to sign up to. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, uh 
it's such a, you know, what I'm, I'm talking with you here, I'm just going, oh my gosh, the implications. Here we started talking about your journey and then to think, oh, well, of course your son's going to be impacted as you're learning about your history. It's also your son's, you know, DNA history and your grandchildren's DNA history. I mean, I mean, I think that it's just, it's really um, impacting me at this moment, thinking about just how the chain continues and not knowing that piece can impact so many different generations. Yeah, well, my son was out in California at the time I was on the East Coast, and my daughter was on the East Coast. So my daughter was actually my uh, uh, my research aide uh, ah. for all of these 22 years. My son was an interested party and a, an enthusiast and a cheerleader, but my daughter helped me dig the the uh, dig the holes for the information. And what was her experience with learning this alongside of you? I think similar to to my own, she was thrilled for me that uh, I had uh, answered all of these questions. Uh, I, was, I was thrilled for her, actually, that she helped me along the way. I told her that uh, she has uh, uh, another business calling as a forensic researcher. Huh. Well, I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm, I'm touched by the this discovery, the secret and how this also led to this experience with your children that almost sounds like uh, you are fellow researchers with your daughter that I could imagine that could even bring you closer together as you well, were we got, going we got through very this. fortunate in that uh, I found uh, the source of my seed and uh, his daughter, uh, and she was very forthcoming and very willing um, I was fearful that I might be treated as a uh, bastard stepchild in King's oh. Court looking for something that uh, wasn't there. Right. But I was, I was greeted openly as opposed to I was pushed back. Now, there are others that have just the opposite experience. So I got very lucky. I'm very fortunate. Uh, but to, to answer your question, again, I had a real bonus. And the bonus was as an only child, I actually have some siblings that I like. That that is that is a bonus. So, you know, oh my goodness, my goodness, our, our time is slipping away. As uh, I, I had a feeling this would happen with us, Peter. Once we started talking about this, most interesting experiences that you're sharing with us. But there's a couple more that I'd like to ask you. Um, what is the significance of your book's title to you? It's also, I noticed it's it's said in a very particular way. Well. Uh, as I mentioned, the, uh, the experience of uh, genealogical bewilderment and uh, understanding that I was misattributed just was very traumatic uh, to begin with. Uh, and I, I was just totally uprooted. No other way to put it. I was yeah. uprooted. My, uh, my uh, family trauma had been uh, rekindled. My origins were in question, and then I learned the secret of history of artificial insemination. And I go over in the book my, uh, my top 10 secrets uh, of the assisted reproductive technology field uh, to have uh, uh, made me uprooted to begin with. And it starts with number one, artificial insemination was actually perfected in the 19th century uh, on the farm and animal husbandry. Hmm. by a, uh, a mad scientist who was ultimately exiled and nicknamed Red Frankenstein. Oh, my. So I have quite a story about that. 
but in history, artificial insemination by husband was actually first alleged in 1462 really? by a medieval king. Huh. Uh, but it was first documented in the 18th century by a, a physician of English royalty, actually in 1790. Uh, the first artificial insemination by donor actually took place in 1884, and it was, in essence, a criminal act inside of a med school. And I go over oh, the detail of that. Uh, we talked earlier how church and state drove assisted reproductive technology and donor insemination underground in a, actually a shroud of secrecy throughout the 20th century. And the early practice of donor insemination actually had a eugenics overtone to it to be a, among the selected uh, oh. people. Uh, it was back to the farm. It was frozen bull semen that actually enabled today's wild west of gamut distribution. <laughs> Oh my God. In the 1950s. And then 21st century technology has really obsoleted uh, the current practices, which are 20 century practices for assisted reproductive technology. And so, Peter, as I'm seeing that our time is quickly slipping away, um, I want to thank you for coming and sharing all this information with us. But I also, um, I'm really struck by the purpose that has come out of this experience. Um, is there anything you want to say to our listeners as we, we are closing right now about what is important for them to know that's been one of your most important learned lessons in, in a minute or less? I know that's not very much time. I, I start my book with a quote that's from Buddha, actually. Okay. Uh, Something like three things cannot be long hidden, the sun, the moon, and the truth. <sighs> uh, I, my, my, my notion is just no more secrets. No it's more going secrets. to come out. Uh, all the research done uh, on behalf of a child says that the right thing to do, the best thing to do is to be forthright and let that uh, donor conception be part of the child's woodwork from the very beginning of his life as and opposed so, to a, a traumatic uh, discovery later in life. And so, and one more thing, but one minute left is uh, how can people get a hold of you? It, you have a website somewhere that they can contact you. I do. It's www.peterjbonnie.com. All right. Peter, again, thank you. And I, and I just, again, want to um, really appreciate and have so much gratitude to you for bringing this very important issue forward. I, I wish you much luck in your book. Remember that you can purchase it at Amazon. It's, it's available electronically, and it will come out in the end of January in hardback. And say the name. That's going to be the final word. You're going to have a final word. Say the name of the book one more time. Thank you. Uprooted, Family Trauma, Unknown Origins, and the Secretive History of Artificial Insemination. And this is Elaine Miller-Karis signing off for today until our next time with a great bow and appreciation to Peter J. Boney. Thank you, Bonnie. Thank you. Thanks, Elaine. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karras, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. 
Resiliency Within, with host Elaine Miller-Karras, is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.